I just want to mention before I invite Pastor Hatcher to the pulpit that I've known uh, him for about 25 years, and God has blessed me richly. He is on my short list of men that I call when I need a pastor and when I need counsel. He is a wise man and a blessed family, and we are very blessed to have him here with us today. And so I want to introduce him to uh, to you and commend him to you as you attentively uh, sit under the preaching of the word today. Brother, welcome. Well, thank you, Pastor Booth. It is your birthday, and so I want to give you a great uh, happy birthday with regard to that. And also, he just want to let you know, you, as you all know, um, you have a wonderful pastor. Um, I don't know about his short list, but his name is on many pastors' short lists, and he is a go-to man uh, for many of the pastors who seek counsel in prayer over the years. He's a, a rock in the CREC um, in terms of um, a man who has brought peace and wisdom and, uh, and, and wonderful counsel to many, many people, including myself, over the years. So thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing your pastor uh, in many different ways over, over the years as well. Greetings from Trinity Church, uh, from the elders and from the congregation there. We do send our greetings to you, um, and uh, it's wonderful to join with you in the heavenlies every Lord's Day as we worship. As I bring to you the word now, I'd ask you to stand and again hear the word of God. Passage this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, and these are the words of God. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word is food for our souls. Our souls are hungry. The soul of our nation is hungry. Fill us, feed us by the work of your spirit in the preaching of your word. Lift our hearts and transform the heart of our people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why do we have such a hard time living in peace? Why does the world have such a hard time living in peace? James tells us in chapter 4, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss 
that you may spend it on your pleasures. James addresses this. To summarize it, we are at war with one another because of our pride and because of our envy. Because of our pride and because of our envy. Outside of Jesus Christ, we cannot keep either of the two great commandments or all the commandments that fall under them. We cannot love God outside of Christ and his work, and we cannot love one another outside of the work of Christ as well. The secular world around us today erroneously tries to lead the world to to peace. We talk of peace all the time. The world talks of peace all the time. And they try to lead us, though, through Christ-less means. And unfortunately, most of the church around us today in our generation is following their lead, following along, believing that somehow we can have peace without Christ, that we can bring together peoples without Christ, that we can love one another without Christ. But this, but these, this, these efforts do not address the core problem. We are estranged from God and from one another due to our sin- sinfulness. You see, we're estranged from God because of our sinfulness, What we often forget, even Christians forget, is that we're estranged from one another as well due to our sinfulness. There is no peace apart from Christ, the Prince of Peace. There is no peace apart from the Prince of Peace. And in Jesus, who is our peace, we find that all enmity, all enmity has been put to death. Therefore, whether it's familial familial strife, amongst family members, whether it's marital strife among spouses, whether it's political, national, or ethnic strife, the only answer is Jesus Christ crucified and raised and the new man we have all become in him. Every other attempt will only be in the long run simply rearranging the enmity, strife, and hatred. All it does is move it from one location to another, from one group of people to another group of people, from one person to another person. If Christ is not at the center of it all, any attempt will only be in the long run simply just moving the enmity and the hatred and the strife around the room. And Paul is addressing exactly this issue as he comes to Ephesians chapter 2. In, 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 this, in this passage, he began in chapter 2 um, by talking about the depths of our sinfulness and the heights of our salvation. He talked about that we were all dead, walking dead men, completely separated from God, and yet we've been made alive, we've been raised into new life, made, one, made, made a new man uh, in him, and we've been made that way as we come to our passage here in verse 10. It says, we've been made in this way for his good works. There are great works for us to do. There are good works, but there are only good works for us to do that have been prepared for us in advance by God himself. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you're in Christ Jesus, he has good works for you. He has prepared them for you and you are to walk in them. They're already there for us. We don't have to go around looking for the good works. They are prepared for us to walk in, but only for those who are in Christ. Now, Paul turns in this passage, Paul, a Jew himself, turns to a mostly Gentile church as he writes to the church at Ephesus and reminds them of what a hopeless state they were in before Christ came. 
They were Gentiles, he says, in the flesh and at odds with the circumcision made in the flesh by hands in verse 11. So he identifies that both Jew and Gentile alike, even though the Jew is circumcised, he's circumcised in the flesh and the Gentiles are in the flesh. And there they are. Both groups in their pride hated the other group. Both had ethnic pride. The kind that inflamed enmity and hatred towards one another. The Greeks had a particular pride in idolatry, particularly in Ephesus. Their worship of Diana, the goddess of fertility, was was prominent in that city. A great temple to Diana was there. And the Greeks, along with all the Gentile nations, were, were fivefold separated from God. We see in verse 12, fivefold separated from God, he lists for us there. They were um, without Christ in verse 12. They were without Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Remember, Christ is the the word Messiah. Uh, The Hebrew word is Messiah. It's the anointed one. It's his title. And so they were without a Messiah. They were without a Savior. They were without a Deliverer, verse 12. Because Diana and all the other gods, all the other Greek gods, could not save. They were no Messiahs at all. They were also aliens of the commonwealth of Israel. And it should be noted that they were aliens by choice. They hated the Jews. They were, they, they were also strangers to the covenants of promise, which had been granted first of all to Abraham and then through Abraham to the world. But they themselves found themselves to be strangers. They lacked the promises of God and the covenants could not bring them close to him. And finally, they had no hope for their people They had no hope for eternal life. They had no hope for any eternal destiny. Historians will not oftentimes tell you how desperate, how despairing, how dark the ancient world was when it came to considering eternity, when it came to considering who you were, what your identity was, and whether or not there was any hope for you in any way. The ancient world was a great cloud of hopelessness all through it. Finally, it says also that they were without God in the world and their false gods instead were harsh taskmasters. And then in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, in one fell swoop, it was all erased, all over, all made new, not just potentially, but objectively And in essence, finally, taken place for all peoples, all nations, for the world. Jesus finished his work. They were brought near, he says, by the blood of Christ. They were brought near. And and what happened is that the blood of Christ is the cleansing power of a Savior who took the penalty for our sin upon the cross. It is this glorious truth of our forgiveness. It puts away all despair, all hopelessness, all shame, all guilt. It's all taken care of 100% in the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ. All of it. That's what happens in those, in those two verses. That's what happens for us vertically. That's what happens in Christ vertically. And then he goes on and talks about at the same time what takes place because of that horizontally as well. In verses 14 through 18, He describes the abolition of enmity, not just between man and God, but between man and man. And so in Christ, we have peace with God, Romans 5.1. But Christ doesn't just make peace. This is what's glorious about our religion. 
Christ just doesn't make peace. Christ is our peace. He is our peace. It's wonderful. Verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. You find yourself that once you're in Christ, once you're in peace in Christ, now you you are already in peace with one another. It's already declared and done in Christ. In, in this peace, we are together, one, in peace in Christ together. And this peace is personal, and therefore this peace is relational. The, the peace is not just a, kind of an Eastern mysticism feeling of hum. No, no this, this peace is a, is a personal, relational between you and God and the ability to be at peace with one another in a way that the world never can be. This is the way it is with God. This is the way it is now with one another. The wall of separation, he tells us, the formal ordinances of division were all abolished in Christ so that there is just one man from the two. Verse 15, thus making peace between all distinctions. Thus making peace. In Galatians, Paul would say, speaking just of this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When men are reconciled to God in Christ, they are reconciled to one another because Jesus has just one body. If you are in the body of Christ, you are in just one body. There's just one of us. And in Christ, we are reconciled then. The enmity, therefore, between ethnic groups was put to death on the cross. When the gospel is preached, Jesus is preaching exactly that. And Jesus is the one that is preaching, for he is that word, that evangel, that gospel. And this is why Paul, Paul says in verse 17, And he came, Jesus came, and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. But Jesus hadn't gone to Ephesus. We have no indication that Jesus ever traveled to Ephesus. But when the gospel is preached, when the gospel is preached with his word, by the power of the Spirit, by his ministers, we hear the word the words of Jesus, and we hear Jesus himself preaching peace to us, preaching his reconciliation of the world to us, declaring that we are his body, and that being declared to us, joining us together in the, in the relationship of love, the perfect relationship of love that he and his Father enjoy together. We are invited into that through Christ's wonderful work for us. He's made peace for us. And this enmity has been put to death that we had beforehand. And it's, it is given to us um, in, in, the, in the preaching of the gospel. And it's the same message to every, every people group that ever existed. So in our heavenly picture, in Revelation chapter 7, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. There is only one Spirit who gives us access through Jesus to the Father. And that one Spirit has done so. This salvation and reconciliation is Trinitarian then. And that means it is full of both unity and diversity. We don't become, we don't all end up looking the same. We don't all end up having the same exact kinds of cultures. We're, we're, not, try, we're not trying to press everybody into one kind of exact um, unity mold. 
Because while we have unity in Christ, we have glorious diversity. And it's expressed through the church. It's expressed through the nations, through the tribes, through the clans, through the families, and even individuals. Both the unity and diversity of what it is to be in Christ is displayed in all of its glory, all of its colors, all of its sounds, and over all time. This is the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we should think about this then in our day. We should think about this in our day where there is another discussion about race and racism. Um, scripture tells us that we are one blood, that really that this word race um, is, is not, a, it's not a helpful term in one, in one sense. Um, the, the scriptures t- talk about nations and tribes and peoples. And if that's what we mean by different kinds of, of ethnic communities or ethnic groups or clans, then fine. But we're all one blood. We're just one people. Acts chapter 17, um, uh, Paul declares, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. All of this diversity is something that God established. In fact, in that passage that we heard earlier in, in Genesis chapter 12 comes on the heel of the story of the, of the dispersing of all of the nations after the Tower of Babel. This is all God's doing. He goes on in, 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 uh, in Acts chapter 17 and he says wh- why he did this. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, Paul would, would say, for we are also his offspring. God loves the glorious diversity of people groups. And of course he does, as that reflects the fact that we are image bearers of the triune God. This is why God established the nations. And as he established the nations, he promised the seed of Abraham. He promised to Abraham that his seed would be a great blessing to all of them. This is what we heard in in, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, to Abraham. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you... All the families of the earth, all the ethnos, all the ethnic groups, all the people groups, all of them will be blessed through you, Abraham. That's my plan. It's as almost as God decided to divide and conquer, divide and put all of the nations, set set up all of these nations. They're all together at the Tower of Babel. They're trying to build their own way to God, this great, glorious temple of man. And God... God sets it all down by, by, by dividing them through tongues and people groups and sending them out into nations, dividing them, choosing Abram and saying to him, now through you, all of those nations are going to be blessed. That's my plan. That's my plan. And so what we see is that racism is simply a sin of the old man. Listen to Titus. Racism is, is just simply one of the old man leftovers. Titus says, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Without the reconciliatory work of Christ, we hate God. Without the work of Christ, we by nature hate God. And without the work of Christ, we by nature hate hate one another. We hate God's image bearers. We hate God and we hate God's image bearers. There is no peace. 
there, there is no peace. There only can be, at best, a Cold War peace treaty, but not peace. When World War II ended, it's not because all of a sudden all the French and all the Germans decided they loved one another. That's not what happened. There was a peace treaty that stopped the fighting, but there was not love. During our Cold War that we experienced for many decades, and I don't know, maybe we still have it in some sense, it's not because we're not fighting because we love one another. We have agreements to not work, to not work from the hatred we have for one another. We have certain agreements so we don't go and fight. But it didn't create love. It just stopped the fighting. The enmity still boils under the surface of the old man. You see that? So we might find ways to stop fighting, but we will not love one another. And the enmity just gets shifted around because we aren't reckoning it crucified in Christ. I've been alive long enough to watch how we hate one country for a while, and then we stop hating that country, but we hate another country for a while. And you watch all of the countries. There's this shifting of hatred of countries, of people groups, of clans. It just shifts around. It doesn't go away. And the enmity just does this because we aren't reckoning the enmity crucified in Christ. We try to do it through the United Nations. We try to do it through other human means. But we don't submit ourselves first to the fact that we have enmity because we hate God. We're going to hate one another. We must find the answer in Christ Jesus. In fact, in fact, and this is important today, when when attacking a particular sin becomes attractive outside the church, we should all get a little nervous. Because they aren't doing so based on an absolute standard. It's fickle. It's fickle where it's going to go over time. Relativistic secular humanism is always fickle because it has no absolute standard. Look, the the humanists today, they love Darwin's book on the origin of species. They'll tell you that. They won't tell you the title in its full. They're a little embarrassed of the title of its full. Darwin's book is actually on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Oops. Being a racist, it's, it's just not in vogue in today's secular culture. But it was. It was. It's just not today. Well, there were no absolute standards that changed this. What keeps it from going back in another day? There, there's no standard for either of those values. So, so it wasn't, it wasn't, it, it, it's, it was vogue in another day. It's not vogue today, but neither is caring for hundreds of black lives murdered in the womb in vogue today. And there's no standard for determining that on, in either case. There is no peace outside of Christ. There's only fickle opinions that blow with the wind. To offer peace without Christ at the center. To offer peace without Christ at the center is to preach a false gospel. They will not hear Jesus and it is not the gospel. It is not the gospel of reconciliation to take care of the enmity, the hatred that you have with God in your, in your old man and that we have with one another, all of God's image bearers as well. And so, if we could be at peace with God and with one another... If we could keep the two great commandments without Christ, then we don't need Christ. And if we teach this, 
then we will drive people further and further and further away from, from Christ. So let me be clear. If we fight for racial reconciliation without Christ at the center, we will lead people away from Christ. If we fight for racial reconciliation and we don't name the name of Jesus as the center, as the power, as the only way for such reconciliation, we are leading people away from Christ. Christ and Christ alone is sufficient. And so instead, we are to preach Christ crucified. Crucified for all of our stupid, selfish, petty, and wicked sins. Racism is not the problem. Racism is one of the symptoms. Separation and alienation from God is the problem. And we could do nothing about that problem. Nothing. But God. But God in Christ Jesus abolished the enmity towards him and towards his image bearers, reconciling us to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, and the creating in himself one new man. And you can take that gospel to any, any issues of enmity and separation. You can take that gospel to any couple that is struggling with their marriage and say the key issue is you and Christ, first of all. you got to get you right with Christ, and she or he's got to get themselves right with Christ, and then we can talk about you two being right with one another. But Christ has to be the center of it all. Or all you're going to do is push the enmity around or shove the hatred down or push the bitterness down. The same thing happens within families. The same thing happens within clans and within nations and with what we call races as well. Preaching Christ crucified is preaching the abolition of enmity. And so here's the good news. Racial reconciliation already has been accomplished. It already has been accomplished. Christ did it. This is not something that we have to achieve. It is something we have to believe. You say, no, that, how can that be? Look at, look at what's going on. Well, wait, wait, don't look at what's going on out there. Look at yourself for just a moment. Isn't that what you are to believe with regard to your own salvation? I, I, you, hear, you hear God's law uh, given to you and, and you, and you fall down and you say, I can't keep any of the law. And you say, no, it's all been kept for you in Christ Jesus. It's all done. It's all accomplished. Well, what do I have to do? You don't have to do anything. You believe. That's the work that you do. Believe. And even that faith is a gift that is given to you from God. Well, the same thing exists with regard to the harmony. With regard, the harmony that you have with God is something that you believe that God has done for you. And for the world, it has been done for the world, and we are to believe it before we try to get it, before we try to work it out. So, we believe it. Just Jesus came to bring peace on earth, and he is the only way to bring peace on earth because he is the only way to the Father. You have to be reconciled with the Father before you can be reconciled with his kids. But if you are reconciled with the Father, you are by definition reconciled with his kids because you are in Christ and he only has one body. But then again, why? Why then all of this violence? Why are there wars? Why is there such enmity, division, and brokenness in families, in marriages, in communities, between ethnic groups and nations? Why? Why is there all this violence? Well, if this is true, if this gospel is true, then here's the answer. Because we've turned away from Christ. 
Because we have turned away from the Prince of Peace. Why is there no peace? Because we have turned away from the Prince of Peace. We've turned away from the kingdom of peace. We've turned away from the person who is peace. And we've turned away from peace, then we don't, then it's obvious what the answer is. Why is there no peace? The world, or the word is clear. You cannot say that you love God and hate your brother. You cannot. They do not go together. What of your enemy? What of your enemy? Well, Jesus says to, to love your enemy in the same way that he loved you. But you can only do that if you have peace with God. And you can only have peace with God through Jesus Christ. You must have the vertical first. But if you do, you already have the horizontal. And a church needs to understand this. A church needs to hear this. A local body of believers needs to hear this along with individuals. If you are reconciled with God the Father through Jesus Christ, then you are already reconciled with the world around you. You're already reconciled with all the other believers of all races, of all nations, of all people. You already are. You just go out and act like it now. But it's been given to you. It's been given to us. And and this is the gospel that then spreads and brings true peace to the world around around us. But some will say that the gospel is not enough. And they're right if what they mean is a truncated gospel. Believe in Jesus and one day you'll go to heaven. But go ahead and live however you want between now and then. Of course, that's exactly what the second half of Ephesians is about. Ephesians 1, 2, 3 is about all that Christ has done for you. It's done, cemented, final and complete. Paul then prays, open their eyes, God, that he, and show them the knowledge and the power of all that, I, uh, all that you have given them in Jesus Christ. And then he turns to Ephesians 4 and says, therefore, and the first thing he addresses is unity. But then he goes on to address all kinds of relationships and how they, how they need to be put right if, if, if there's still the old man being carried around, the, the, the ways of the old man still being carried around. You've got to put away those works and put on the works of Christ now because you're in Christ. But you don't do that to get in Christ. You do that because you're in Christ. And the world can only do it if the world would come to Christ. If the world comes to Christ, then the discipleship of the nations takes place. And then the living out of the peace that is ours in Jesus Christ is experienced and enjoyed. Jesus said to go and disciple the nations, the ethnos, the ethnic groups. Gospel includes teaching them to observe all things I have commanded. And that means we proclaim peace. We proclaim it as done, finished in Christ. And then we teach how to walk in that peace. Because the believer, full of the Spirit, can walk in peace. Because of the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. God never commands what he doesn't give. And so he commands you to love, and the fruit of the Spirit is love. He commands you to rejoice And the fruit of the Spirit is joy. He commands you to be at peace with Him and with all men. And the fruit of the Spirit is peace. This will not happen among good people. Stop looking for good people to make peace. This will not happen among good people because there are no good people. This will happen among remade people, reborn people, people who find themselves in one body, and that body is Christ who has put to death the enmity. Between God and man, the enmity has been put to death. Between man and man, the gospel proclaims the enmity has been put to death. And again, the good news, Jesus has done this. It is done. It is done. Believe it. And welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. 
Thank you for sending Jesus, the Prince of Peace, into this war-torn, hate-filled, broken relationships, finger-pointing world to die for us. To pay the price of our sin, our hatred, our racism, our envy, our lies, our murder, all of it. To kill us in it and to raise us up in new life without it, in the new man remade in Christ. Raise your people up to proclaim this truth, to believe all that Jesus has done, and to live like it as light and life to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.